What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Let the bad guys be. David Aronovich and Rory Stewart on the perils of foreign intervention. This event took place on the 3rd of March 2011 at Hall in London. Well, good evening ladies and gentlemen and a very big welcome to you all. Those forthcoming events are going to be pretty good, but I think tonight's event is going to be the real cracker. And uh, remember, we're talking about the perils of foreign interventionism. It's a pretty wide subject, but we are going to get some pretty fiery disagreement, I think, and probably points of agreement as well. The question we're addressing tonight is is, is the big one, really. It's the one... um, behind all foreign policy questions, and it's certainly one that is, has added relevance given the momentous events taking place in North Africa and the Middle East at the moment. And I think tonight, I hope, we will be covering three sets, different sets of questions associated with um, the general issue of let the bad guys be and the perils of foreign interventionism. The first one is the should set of questions. What should we be concerned with foreign policy-wise? Should we be guided solely by concerns of national self-interest? Or should we be in the democracy promotion business? Or is being in the democracy promotion business perhaps consonant with our self-interest? Or is that just starry-eyed idealism? So those are the should questions which I hope will be touched upon by our two speakers. The how set of questions, particularly relevant now, how do we get involved, in what ways, doing nothing, talking, economic aid or economic sanctions, military aid or military sanctions, a whole variety of different interventions which could or could not be considered a good thing. And finally, the what set of questions, what, if anything, can we realistically achieve by following any one of those paths? What are the costs of intervening? And how do they stack up against the costs of not intervening? So I'm hoping that we're going to be covering a lot of that tonight and that when, we get round, when you get round to asking questions, you'll be touching on some of those issues. Two reasons, I think, why tonight's event is going to be such a cracker. One, because as if the question itself was not... A central one, it has become, as I say, so central because of what we're seeing in the Middle East and North Africa. 
And the second reason is because our two speakers are such good speakers and such key guys to be talking about this and disagreeing about this. I think you know a lot about both of them. There are some similarities between the two. They've both had illustrious careers. David is a is, is an award-winning journalist who's written for practically every national paper and now writes a column for The Times and is the author of a, of a very stimulating book on conspiracy theory. And Rory, well, you probably need half an hour to go through Rory's CV, but you uh, know that he's been a soldier, a diplomat, deputy governor in uh, a, a province of Iraq. He's walked across the empty spaces of Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, and Nepal. He um, has taught at Harvard, and um, he is now a Tory MP. Um, it, for me... Perhaps the differences... Oh, there are two other similarities which are interesting. Both were at Balliol College, Oxford, and both were initially in favour of the Iraq invasion. Differences are more striking. Rory is the son of a diplomat who was a senior member of British Overseas Intelligence and later the head of the Rubber Growers Association in Malaysia, whereas David is the son of a communist economist. Rory went to Eton. David went to Holloway County Comprehensive. Rory's parents, admittedly to Rory's dismay, cast his proxy vote for the Conservatives while Rory was walking in India. (laughs) And he's now a Tory MP. David, as far as I know, has never dreamt of voting Tory, was once a Euro-communist, and still regards himself as a man of the left, although his support for the Iraq invasion has dismayed many of his left colleagues. And, of course, Rory is a politician and David is a journalist. But most importantly for tonight... Rory is broadly anti-intervention, and David is broadly pro. And it's that difference that we want to see clarified and brought out into the open tonight. And we'll start with... Oh, no. Before we do that, let me give you a quick lowdown of how how the evening is going to proceed. First of all, um, I'm going to ask you right now for a show of hands about whether you consider yourselves broadly pro-intervention or broadly anti. And let's do that right now. Hands, please, for those who are broadly anti-intervention. David, you've got your work cut out tonight. (laughs) Okay, well, we are going to start with Rory giving a five-minute speech for his case, David answering him with a five-minute speech, and then two five-minute rebuttals on that. I'm then going to put one or two questions to them, depending how we're doing time-wise. And after that, it's over to you, and you, I hope, are going to put some startling questions to both our speakers. Okay, Rory, over to you. Well, thank you very, very much. Uh, It's a great privilege to be here and a great privilege to debate David. I think the central question that we're facing, and, and this was brought out very well by Jeremy's introduction, is not so much the question of what should we do, but what can we do. I served as a diplomat in the Balkans and in Indonesia working on East Timor, And I am very, very much convinced that the intervention in Bosnia was a good thing. 
And any number of Bosnians will say to you that if you saw 37,000 Bosnians killed in the streets of Sarajevo, it's not that you objected to the Americans attacking the Bosnian Serb artillery positions. You would want to know why did they not do it sooner? There are contexts, there are occasions in the world where intervention is morally necessary, strategically necessary, and something of which we can be proud. The problem, of course, of the last 20 years is that we have reduced this insight to the absurd. Our success in Bosnia, our failure in Rwanda, and our success in Kosovo and our failure in Somalia put us into a situation in 2001 when we felt we were godlike. We felt we could do almost anything. And I felt this myself as a British diplomat, as somebody who'd been very briefly in the army, been in the Balkans. I felt that in Afghanistan and Iraq, we had an astonishing opportunity to transform these societies. I still believe that there's nothing wrong with the moral instinct. I'm not committed in the most theoretical level of international law to state sovereignty. It's not that I believe that the fact that Iraq was an independent country gave Saddam total immunity. In fact, I believe if you can intervene in a country, prevent a genocide, and improve dramatically the lives of the people within that country, you would have a moral right and something close to a moral obligation to do that. But the question is not what should we do, but what can we do? And the awful lesson of the last decade is that we don't know very much about these countries. We can't do very much in these countries, and we are not very welcome in a lot of these countries. Particularly, for example, in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, we're intervening in countries which are brutally a long way away, where we lack the history, the linguistic expertise, the cultural sensitivity to really begin to understand the textures of those societies or states. We find ourselves floundering and failing. And most desperately, we find ourselves in a situation in which opposition groups, whether it's the Sadrists in Iraq or the Taliban in Afghanistan, are able to present themselves as fighting for their nation and for Islam against a foreign military occupation. They're able to portray these involvements as neo-colonial. There are certain things we could do to improve this, and maybe as the debate continues, we can talk about some of those things. We could, for example, improve the quality of our foreign offices. We could get out of our embassies more. We could speak other people's languages better. We could try to think about whether there are certain elements in Bosnia and Kosovo which we can identify, which would mean that success was more likely there than in countries like Iraq or Afghanistan. But the basic message must be one of prudence, not of selfishness, not of saying this is none of our business, but of saying, do no harm. Of identifying that other people's countries, other people's nations are intrinsically unpredictable, chaotic, uncertain.
and understanding ourselves, understanding our own tendency to exaggerate our fears, to make a country like Afghanistan seem the source of all global terror, to believe that unless we do something in Afghanistan, bombs will be going off in Stansted. Unless we do something in Afghanistan, Pakistan will fall and mad mullahs will get their hands on nuclear weapons. Recognizing our paranoia, recognizing our megalomania, the optimism of the American military, the British military, the optimism of our own cultures, which make us feel that we're godlike, that we can do whatever we want anywhere in the world. Recognizing our extraordinary smug sense of moral obligation, which combined with that paranoia and megalomania, drives us into places where angels fear to tread. So, what does this mean? It means that when David stands up, you will hear a very passionate, very charming, very well-informed plea for the moral obligation for intervention. And the one thing I would ask of you, while respecting his moral energy and direction, is to remember the necessity for prudence. Right? Necessity to ask not what should we do, but to remember we have been nearly 10 years in Afghanistan and we have failed entirely to create the economic development, the governance or the security of which we dreamed despite the expenditure this year of 150 billion US dollars and 150,000 troops. And we are not likely to because we lack knowledge, we lack power and we lack legitimacy. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you very much, Rory. And now it's David's turn to give his first speech. Um, There is a certain asymmetry um, to this debate, not just in terms of your initial vote, but also in terms of, I think, the appeal of the people you see up on this platform. It's uh, indicative that... Rory Stewart's first book, The Places in Between, is a wonderful account of a 6,000-mile journey on foot across Pakistan, India, Iran, and Afghanistan. And my first book, Paddling to Jerusalem, is an account of kayaking up the Grand Union Canal. Um, His highlights are a series of meetings that he has with incredibly dangerous and exotic people, and my highlight is probably the moment that I nearly gave up the struggle at Tring after having to port 23 locks because I had bruised knees. Um, The Telegraph says about Rory, and and it's right, Britain doesn't make men like Rory Stewart anymore. Um, He was hailed by Esquire magazine as one of the 75 most influential people of the 21st century. 75 is a slightly capricious figure, Rory, and I don't know where you came in it, but I think you deserved your place. And the information that Brad Pitt had already bought the rights to his biopic. I'm going to let you into a secret. Brad Pitt has not bought the rights to my biopic. (laughs) And when a... And when a US magazine described Rory as it seems that he is the closest thing Britain has to a modern-day Lawrence of Arabia, uh, there are many things that I may be close to a modern-day version of. (laughs) 
but Lawrence Arabia has never been one of them. Now, look, my understanding of the discussion about intervention really in very broad terms is this. In Chicago in 1999, the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, outlined an approach to replace the policy that itself had broadly, though it was never really outlined, replaced the earlier Cold War calculus which had operated during the period that the Soviet Union and the West faced each other across the Iron Curtain. Uh, and essentially, what Blair said was this, and I would hold to it. Firstly, that the world is, in its globalised state, incredibly interdependent. That something that happens in one place very likely has a big knock-on for the rest of us, and therefore that the notion that you could be hermetically sealed from it in terms of your interests were over. The second point he made is that in some situations, uh, Rwanda is the one which is most obvious, uh, obviously given, but Sierra Leone would also be a case, we are, in addition to any calculation of interests, we may be morally bound to try and do something about a situation which is developing somewhere else in the world. You could make a case, for example, if one wanted to invoke it, that there was something to be done better than we did in the 30s with regard to Hitler's internal treatment of the Jews. You could make that case. The third element was that, in general... In general, if the outcome in any particular country tilted towards democracy and liberty, then it will be better for us as well as for the people in that country, in general. And therefore, fourth, the kind of countervailing logic, the more it tilted towards dictatorship and to bondage, then the worse it was likely to be both for the peoples in that country and for us. And we can extend that a little bit. We know, for instance, that one of the greatest indicators of such things as population growth and poverty is the education of women. Uh, it is therefore significantly in our long-term interests that women throughout the world receive as good an education as we can manage to permit them and encourage them to have. The fifth element was that the old idea, the previous idea, which had been held in stasis during the Cold War, of not intervening in the affairs of sovereign states purely because they were sovereign and no matter what they did, was not conducive to the objectives that we had above. In other words, we could get some extremely bad long-term repercussions, quite apart from the moral questions, if there were genocides, massacres and denials of rights, or if democracies were effectively subverted or destroyed. The sixth point was the international institutions that we had, whilst being the ones that we had, were at that moment extremely imperfect for the purposes of bringing about these objectives. And one only has to think about the membership of Colonel Gaddafi of the, human, of the UN Human Rights Council and the other countries that are on that to understand the point that is being made. Seventh point is most intervention was not hard intervention, i.e. military intervention, it was soft. But where it was hard, then a number of conditions had to be made. First, were we sure of the case? Well, sureness is a tricky concept, but nevertheless, armed force is sometimes the only means of dealing with dictators, said Blair. Second, have we exhausted all diplomatic options? We should always give peace every chance, he said. Third, on the basis of a practical assessment of the situation, which is part of Rory's point, are there military operations we can sensibly and prudently undertake? Fourth, are we prepared for the long term? 
Having made a commitment, said Blair, we cannot simply walk away once the fight is over. This is slightly begging the question here, and we might return to it, about what Rory thinks should have been done in 2001, towards the end of 2001 in Afghanistan. I have to say that I am not at all sure myself, um, but I would like to hear what he has to say about it. And finally, do we have national interests involved? I've already suggested that national interest is quite a broad category, and we do in many ways. Now, um, I was going to go on, but I will go on in the second part of the speech, if the uh, circumstances allow me, to talk about the policy which that effectively replaced, although Rory has talked about it a little. Suffice it to say, not just in the cases of Bosnia or Rwanda or Kosovo and so on, but in the cases of Pakistan, in the cases of Afghanistan, and in particular in our long-term policy towards Iraq before we invaded, all policies which were in the long-term disastrous and led up to 9-11 and to other events subsequently, there were no Chilcots. Because the truth is that disastrous foreign policies that involve inaction do not attract the same kind of opprobrium as difficult policies that have required action. Uh, I think that the circumstances described by Tony Blair in the Chicago speech of 1999, as we've seen in the last week, still pertain, and that the case for intelligent intervention still remains. Many thanks, David. Now, Rory, if you would give your five-minute rebuttal and possibly take on board... David's question about 2001 in Afghanistan. Well, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult debating David, uh, given the enormous quantity of his charm. He appears to begin his entire speech with a book blurb for mine, which I've been writing down, put on the cover of my next book. It also, I felt, almost served as a kind of marriage advert. I'm extremely grateful to him. Um, the the a Chicago speech, though, is a great way of looking at the differences between the two of us. Essentially, the problem about the Chicago speech of 1999 is it leads to Iraq in 2003. Not perhaps necessarily, not perhaps in terms of some ineluctable philosophical process, but because of the kind of instincts and intuitions which Blair and I think David share. And I'm just going to run quickly through what David just said in order to talk about what I see the problem as being. Because these problems are sometimes quite elusive. The reason the Chicago speech was so successful is it appeals to so many of our instincts and moral intuitions. So the first one, you remember, David began by saying, Blair sees the world as being interdependent. Right? Nothing too wrong with that, you would have thought. In fact, it ties in with the whole notion of the world as a global village. You begin to think about Friedman's books... In fact, it, it ties in with many of our assumptions about the direction in which global culture is going. He says we may be morally bound to intervene. Well, that also seems intuitively right. I mean, indeed, as David says, I don't think there's anyone in this room who wouldn't feel that we had both a moral right and an obligation to intervene in the case of the Holocaust. He says that if these countries tip towards democracy, it's broadly speaking good for them and good for us, and if they tip to dictatorship broadly speaking, bad for them and bad for us. He says that non-intervention holds dangers, that our international institutions are imperfect, the United Nations, for example, Gaddafi being on the Human Rights Council. 
And then he sets these various conditions. This is the seventh and final point. We have to be sure of the case, exhausted the diplomatic options. We need to be sensible. We need to be prudent. We need to think about the long term. But if you push into every one of those seven points, and obviously within five minutes, I don't have the time to push in those seven points, you see the same problem again and again, which is a lack of understanding of the difficulty of the world and a lack of understanding of our own paranoia and megalomania. Right? The problem with the question of moral obligation, to take the second point, is yes, indeed, we may be morally bound, we may well have a moral obligation, but what are the limits of that obligation? Ought implies can. You do not have a moral obligation to do what you cannot do. It's all very well patting ourselves on the back and saying we have a moral obligation towards the people of Afghanistan or Iraq. But what are its limits? What kind of obligation? How many troops are you prepared to sacrifice? How much money are you prepared to spend? What kind of obligation is this? Is this like the obligation to your own people? And what can you do? It's true the world is interdependent, but that too carries with it its own dangers. The notion that the world is interdependent was exactly the kind of fears that drove and continue to drive this morass in Afghanistan. It's that fear that if Afghanistan falls, Pakistan will fall, the region will crumble. It's the kind of fears that we used to call the domino theory. And as for the rest of this, yes, it's true that Blair says we have to be prudent and we have to think about the long term and we have to consider our exit strategy. But what he fails to take into account are the nature of our own institutions. We are a very optimistic culture, but our military, above all, in its DNA, is optimistic. There is no soldier who says, or who we would ever want to say, this mission is impossible. We are defeated. Every general, given a chance, will say, okay, I've come up with a new strategy. Give me some more resources, and I'm going to crack this one. You cannot, as we found over the last 10 years, simply rely, as Blair thought he could, on going in to see the chiefs of staff and saying, is this Iraq thing doable? Is this Afghan thing doable? Because the answer always comes back, as it's coming from Petraeus at this very moment. Yes, it is. I'm cautiously optimistic. Every general says, I've inherited a dismal situation, but I have a new strategy requiring new resources and this year will be the decisive year. What does this all mean? Well, this all means that if you understand that connection between the energies, the confidence, the optimism, and the fears that drove the Blair of the Chicago speech in 1999 to the Iraq of 2003, you see where the problem in intervention lies. I'm not a radical pessimist. I've lived in a lot of these countries, and I sometimes feel that we've managed to achieve a great deal in education and health and infrastructure in countries like Afghanistan. But the only wisdom in these countries is the wisdom of understanding our limits of what we don't know and what we can't do. The only wisdom is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. Thank you very much. Rory.
just before David takes over, let me ask you, perhaps even on his behalf, since he asked the question, is it then your view that once Western forces had gone in and captured al-Qaeda bases that we should then have got out? Um, this is a question about Afghanistan. What I believe about Afghanistan is that what we needed was a light, long-term footprint. That, in fact, the decision in 2001 to 2002 to keep very few troops, not really get outside Kabul, not really get outside the cities, focus on health, education, infrastructure was the correct one. And that where we actually went wrong is that our fears and our illusions about our own power made us frustrated. We became perfectionists. We began to feel we weren't making as much progress as we wanted. We began to bring in more troops. So if you take Helmand, we went from 300 to 3,000 to 5,000 to 7,000 to 9,000 to 32,000 international troops in a place which has 3% of the landmass and 1% of the population of that country. And it's in that, it's in our inability to understand our limits that the Afghan intervention went wrong. Thank you. Okay, David. Uh, Rory said that um, it was precisely the Chicago speech, well, it wasn't precisely, but it was the Chicago speech, had embedded within it the instincts that led to the invasion of Iraq. Uh, actually, I don't think it did. Um, I think that Chicago, as impacted upon by 9-11, might have held within it the uh, seeds of what happened in Iraq. But Iraq was a very particular response to the situation that both America and Britain and some others thought that the countries uh, faced in the wake of 9-11 and the realisation that there were groups of terrorists who were prepared to use means that no other group organisation of guerrillas or terrorists had ever been prepared to use. That's essentially what they felt 9-11 told us. Now, to somebody like me, however... Um, intervening in Iraq, although it wasn't something that uh, I wanted for myself in the sense that I wasn't something that I was advocating before Bush decided to do it, it also was something that I wasn't prepared to oppose exactly because of what was contained in the Chicago speech. To that extent, you are partly right, Rory, and I think you're also partly wrong. Um, uh, but nevertheless, you were in favour of the invasion of Iraq at the time, presumably because you felt that leaving somebody like Saddam in place was a problem. I want to kind of remind us, ourselves, of what the process of policy towards Saddam Hussein actually was between, let's say, 1980 and the time that we invaded in 2003, or let's say between there and 1998. The process in Iraq was this. Firstly, we dealt with Saddam on a friendly basis, on the basis that he was a realpolitik counter to Iran, which we saw as being a threatening regional power. So it was a straightforward calculation of strategic interest, which took no account of the internal conditions of the populations either of Iran or of Iraq. It was, in a sense, deeply cynical. It was also, in a way, Rory, deeply in itself prudent and realistic but it was completely flawed and it had extremely difficult results. Partially as a result of this, Saddam felt emboldened to attack Kuwait, but Kuwait was more of an ally of ours than Iraq was, and this led to the war against Iraq. When that war was finishing, when it was finished, 
the sheer majority in the South rose up. At this point, we took the prudent case, maybe. We thought more about what we could do than we ought to do, certainly. President Bush did make a statement about how people could rise up, and then we offered no practical help to them doing it in the face of one of the largest armies in the region. The consequence was the suppression with absolutely massive loss of life uh, amongst the Shia of southern Iraq, a place which uh, Rory came later to know well. When that was finished, we then set up a series of UN resolutions to deprive Saddam of his capacity because uh, we had discovered, and we discovered during this process, that it had a nuclear program and a weapons of mass destruction program. Uh, we also set in place sanctions because, uh, this is through the United Nations, because Saddam refused to comply. We did not enforce the, uh, his, his compliance. The sanctions affected the general population of Iraq more than they affected the government of Iraq. And by the time we got to 1998, we were expending a large amount of capital enforcing between the Americans and the British no-fly zones and being the standard bearers for sanctions, which, though they were impacting upon his capacity to attack anybody, were also making us very unpopular around the world and leading to a demand for their withdrawal. In fact... Actually, by 2003, we had run out of policy options in Iraq and almost everything that we had done in the previous 20 years, not in the context of Chicago, helped lead up to the eventual disaster. Funnily enough, despite the catastrophes that attended the intervention in Iraq, the intervention in Iraq itself cannot, I think, at this point, be historically regarded as a catastrophe. Because what you do seem to have in Iraq is a relatively stable government which involves not the highest level of democracy but some level of democratic involvement and freedoms. It is complicated, as Rory says, these places are, but nevertheless, that is the situation. And what do we face now? as a consequence of the way in which people are thinking about, and I'm not going to demur with anything that Rory says about Afghanistan for the moment, um, because the question always is, what happens alternatively? And I do think that he, that Rory also builds, to a certain extent, a fantasy of his alternative imagination of what his Afghanistan looks like, just as I do, to be frank. But I think that we face, at the moment, a gigantic, and this is obviously the case uh, in looking at things like Libya, a gigantic failure of nerve, partially because of Iraq, partially because of Afghanistan, largely also because of the economic crisis and the crash, which has deprived us, uh, in our minds, of the capacity, more or less, to do anything in foreign policy terms. Um, the shift of, yes, we can, to, oh, God, we'd better not, which was, I thought was extremely well captured there by, by Rory. So much so that when the government even went as far as discussing starting the process of looking at a no-fly zone to operate in the case of Colonel Gaddafi using his air force against unarmed or relatively unarmed insurgents. This is what, and I'll finish on this, Simon Tisdall wrote in The Guardian. It's legitimate to ask how far the Prime Minister is prepared to go in backing up his belief that it would be intolerable to allow Gaddafi to use military force against his citizenry. Governments all over the world do exactly that with depressing frequency, whether in Zimbabwe, Uzbekistan, Burma, Iran or China. Britain has somehow learned to live with that without threatening to send in the Marines. You'll notice that David Cameron was not threatening to send in the Marines. This was the reaction to the no-fly zone. And I worry how far this kind of talk leads us to the notion that there is effect nothing we can do, that as James Baker famously said about Bosnia uh, in the early 90s, we have no dog in this fight. Nothing could be more mistaken.
Okay, well, before handing over to you, the audience, I just want to do a quick summary and, and, and ask a couple of questions to our two excellent speakers. It seems to me that there is actually quite a surprising amount of background agreement once you take into account the pretext for intervention, particularly what David describes as hard intervention. So, for example, if there is genocide impending or obviously about to take place or actually taking place, if a country has degenerated into civil war, if you have your Rwanda or Bosnia or Kosovo, the, it seems that both sides are broadly of the opinion that some kind of hard intervention is necessary on moral grounds, um, on overriding moral grounds, really. Equally, I think neither of these two were likely to disagree that some action had to be taken against Osama bin Laden after 9-11, and since he was being sheltered in Afghanistan and had committed an act of obvious aggression, and the international community agreed on it too, he needed, uh, there needed to be an attack. So it seems to me that there are there are fairly easily identifiable preconditions in which actually most of you in this room and probably both the speakers here would agree that intervention and hard intervention is probably necessary. Iraq, of course, is, a, um, is the difficulty here. And let's just leave that aside for the moment. What I want to bring in is the interesting question, the different question, the more modern question given events now taking place in North Africa and the Middle East, What's one's attitude to intervention when the evidence of popular uprising is there before you? When the inter I mean, Libya is a classic case in point, and Rory, I'm going to put this to question to you now. Do we, do all of you who profess to be broadly non-interventionists, follow the line that we just let Libya get on with it, and that to do anything else would actually be to create more problems than not? Or do we lobby hard for an international solution, a no-fly zone solution, which itself will require considerable military intervention to knock out Gaddafi's anti-aircraft positions? Or do we take a more David line and say, yeah, they have expressed their strong desire to be free of tyranny and possibly also to have democracy and we should take every step to aid and abet them. Rory. Okay, I, I, I think, without being boring about it, we, we need to define our terms. Uh, intervention means something very, very clear. And it comes from the Latin word meaning coming between. When we talk about a military intervention in the modern context, we're talking about putting troops on the ground. We're not talking about imposing sanctions. We're not even talking about no-fly zones. Right? What we did in the Kurdish areas of northern Iraq was not an intervention. Nobody's ever called it an intervention. So what we're talking about is do we or do we not, to use another Latin word, invade another country? Right? Do we go into Libya because Colonel Gaddafi is strafing his population? Do we deploy NATO or United Nations troops onto the ground? On what grounds? What is the red line which Gaddafi needs to cross before we do that? We have reached a very, very, very interesting position in the world if what Gaddafi is currently doing 
imposes on us an obligation towards military intervention. What Gaddafi is doing is shocking. It's morally wrong. The man is a nutcase. But he's also a savage brute who's probably killed 150,000 people in North Africa, as well as aiding terrorist organizations all around the world. But I do not believe that what Gaddafi has done to date justifies us deploying United Nations, NATO troops onto the ground in Libya. Full stop. And just by the by, do you think you are at one with your party leader on this? Um, I can't, obviously, uh, see into the head of my party leader or speak on his behalf, but my sense is that what he's come away with is not, as David somehow suggests, a massive failure of nerve. What I hope we're trying to regain in this country is a sense of realism, not a sense of selfish realism. In other words, pragmatic, but moral. Right? A realism that could be interested, as David Owen is, in the notion of setting up some kind of air supremacy, certainly interested in sanctions, certainly interested in, broadly speaking, making that region as we have to make it, by any means at our disposal, more prosperous, more stable, more humane in 20 years' time than it is today but probably, I think, at the moment, a pragmatic realism that does not mean boots on the ground in Tripoli. Okay, well, assuming for the moment, perhaps you won't want to, David, that um, that rather broad term, coming between, Latin, Latin as it may be, does not include, say, coming between the ruler and his people by giving economic aid to protesters, for example. Uh, no, it is, um, it, I mean, firstly, Holloway County, we didn't do Latin, and that's not a, that's not a kind of um, debat on O point that I'm attempting to make there. Um, it is that the everyday use of the word would mean getting stuck in. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't use it. But, but I will accept it in this sense. I think that one of the things that was different about the concept of intervention, because there's all kinds of what you would call the projection of soft power, which we haven't talked about, which are important acts. Um, debt remission, for instance, was one. The Blair government was incredibly active in all kinds of forms of soft power, which were very important. One of the reasons why the government absolutely rightly protects the aid budget in the way in which it does whilst attempting to try and spend it as intelligently as possible uh, is because it sees the long-term consequences of the use of aid uh, and that would be a projection of soft power as well and a very important one and the Blair government was very active in that but specifically on intervention what it tends to mean is acting against or without the agreement of sovereign governments. That's essentially what it means. It doesn't mean boots on the ground at all. Um, it was certainly an intervention into the affairs of Iraq to operate the no-fly zone in the Kurdish areas, for instance. So John Major did a bit of it, and this was extended under Clinton and Blair to the, to, to the fly zone and the bombings that took place in pursuit of them in 1998. Have we intervened you... in Zimbabwe by imposing sanctions against the wishes of the sovereign government? Yes, in a way we have intervened. The question about whether you've intervened sufficiently in Zimbabwe but you can see an argument in the past for not intervening against Zimbabwe or, in, or earlier not intervening at the first signs that the Zimbabwe government were doing things that were wrong. I mean, what becomes the trigger for these things is always very important. Um, so essentially, I would accept intervention not as boots on the ground, but as intervening against the sovereign government. And the question is arises. So I wouldn't imagine any scenario just about in which British troops 
set foot in Libya again for the first time since, what, 1944 or whatever it was, uh, and so on. And we see, you know, the uh, Tommies in Benghazi uh, uh, yet again. But look at the difficulties in getting a no-fly zone agreed. Uh, most people believe, uh, like Paddy Ashton was saying, that a no-fly zone would require UN resolution. You would have to take to the United Nations a resolution for intervention, which would have not to be subject to veto or subject to majority vote by the Security Council. In other words, you would have to attempt to persuade China and Russia simply to set up the procedure that allowed you to prevent, if he were to do so, Gaddafi's jets bombing the, uh, the, the, the insurgents uh, and the rebels in Libya. Now, I put it to you that under the circumstances where, and it may not happen, Gaddafi was able to use his air force to destroy the rebels in that kind of, uh, in the kind of and that process was underway, we would find it very much in our interest to try and intervene. It may be that Rory agrees with that. I simply, I simply don't know. There's been a big Do argument about it. Yeah. I think if Gaddafi is attempting to conduct some sort of genocide or cleansing of his people, we should be pushing in every way that we can as Britain to impose a no-fly zone on Libya. Yes. Right. I think a lot of... Uh, I applaud that. A lot of people, including people in your own party, uh, and certainly those without, would regard that as being an example of uh, liberal interventionism, for instance. Do we see the audience happened. on this one? How many people... Can I, before yeah. we go to yeah. this... Yeah. <laughs> this is, is going to not be much of a debate if intervention means any form of foreign policy conducted against any unfriendly regime anywhere in the world. If what we're doing in Burma is intervention, what we're doing in Zimbabwe is intervention, what we're doing in North Korea is intervention, presumably what we're already doing in Libya is intervention, then I don't think we're going to have much disagreement, unless we keep this definition tight so that intervention means what I thought it meant until I turned up tonight. In other words, what we did in Bosnia, what we did in Kosovo, what we did in Sierra Leone, what we did in Iraq, what we did in Afghanistan we're going to be having a debate about whether or not we should have a foreign policy. Rory, we didn't put boots on the ground in Kosovo. We simply threatened to. Um, David, what do you mean we didn't put boots on the ground in we Kosovo? Didn't. We didn't, not until Milosevic had actually withdrawn. But we put, uh, that was the point at which the intervention began. No, that, that wasn't. The point at which the intervention began was when we bombed Serb assets both in Kosovo and Serbia. Can, uh, we, and can, we, can, can we come to some... Before I put that interesting Libya question to you, which I don't want ruled out on the grounds that it's not intervention, but we don't want to rule everything in on the grounds that just saying naughty boy from a, very far, uh, from a place far away is going to be considered intervention. But I do think, Rory, that perhaps you could come halfway and agree that if you are operating a no-fly zone policy and if it, you know, it's going to take all the powers of persuasion to get the UN to agree, you're doing something pretty interventionary against uh, a, a sovereign state? Well, well n- not really. I mean, in a sense, um, you know, this is about let the bad guys be the perils of foreign intervention. The main argument against foreign intervention, the terrible lesson of the last 15 years is a lesson about what happens when you put troops on the ground. It's a lesson about engagements where we end up getting sucked deeper and deeper in, spending $150 billion a year, putting 150,000 troops on the ground, It's really, I mean, just to be coarse about it, it's the lesson of Vietnam. Sure, you can impose a no-fly zone. It's a difficult, complicated thing to do. You need to think seriously about whether you've got the aircraft carriers and the resources. But broadly speaking, as we discovered in the Balkans, 
and in northern Iraq. It's relatively cost-free. It doesn't bring many benefits. It's extremely unlikely to result in regime change. Why but it's are you not therefore very in favour of it? Well, because I think it can contribute. But it's not an intervention. It's not very perilous. And I don't think it's something that anyone in this room thinks is particularly controversial or particularly worth arguing about. Well, right. rather than have a semantic discussion, let's, let's have a Libya discussion. Who here would be in favour of pushing our government to, um, to, to push it, for, it, for itself to push for an agreement on a no-fly zone over Libya? Who would like to see that happen? Interestingly few. So I think in that sense, David, your point about... Ask who wouldn't. Ask who wouldn't. Fair, fair, very fair point. Who would... So, so who, who would not want a no-fly zone in Libya under any circumstances? Okay? That's your answer. <laughs> no. So, uh, well, let's so get this right. Let's, let, let's get this right, because right, I so want to know... there are three people in the audience who wouldn't want it, so I don't think... It's hang on, hang on, hang on. I'll, I'll, I'll ask this question. What... If, if there are only three people in the audience who would not want a, a no-fly zone... Who the hell were all those people putting their hands up the first time? What I, the question I asked was, would you push, would you be in favour of this government lobbying as hard as it can to arrange for... In the case of ethnic cleansing? No, I said of Libya. To organise a no-fly zone over Libya. That's a pretty straightforward question. And a large number of people said they would not be in favour of it, of our government doing that. So... Say that again, I can't hear. The opposite. They didn't say they wouldn't be in favour. Oh, a large, they yes. They, they said they were in favour. And so what, why, who are all the people who haven't put their hands up? What are, what are you, what, what, what kind of foreign policy are you advocating? I'll ask the question again. Are you broadly in favour of a move towards organising and getting the United Nations to agree to a no-fly zone over Libya, in which may well involve taking out some of Gaddafi's uh, uh, um, air, defences. air defences. And how... Yes. OK. Once again, it has to be said, the people who are broadly in favour of that, there's a relatively paltry number, admittedly a better number than the one lone gentleman who said he was against it last <laughs> time. But then, where's the rest of you? Okay, what I are think, the rest I of I, you? I think can I can you, answer the question, no, right? No. Presumably the answer is it depends on the circumstances, right? But that's not the Actually, actually that, is, that is nearly a perfect argument. So it depends on the circumstances. So what you're going to do is you're going to wait until the circumstances and then you're going to begin the process of trying to see whether you can intervene. Too late. It's probably going to be difficult enough through the United Nations as it is. So let me put an alternative to you just for a moment, um, which is... Russia and China tell you that they are going to veto any such resolution in the Security Council. The only thing standing between the rebels and Tripoli is Colonel Gaddafi's air force, and he sends it up to bomb the hell out of them, and it makes the difference between success and failure. I know that I'm kind of loading it, etc. But it is very definitely an intervention at that point to enforce a no-fly zone. You're going to have to take out his air defences. Under those circumstances, let's have a vote. Who would be in favour of doing that? Britain and America and maybe a couple of others. And who would be against? Right, the majority, a lot of people haven't voted, but I say under those circumstances, my interveners have it. (laughs) 
All right, interveners and non-interveners, it's now time for you to intervene. <laughs> so we're going to have, we have some microphones wandering up and down the hall. Can I have a show of hands for the first set of questions, please, which I hope will be evenly addressed to our two discussants. Um, yes, the gentleman right at the back by the double doors there. Um, this is a question to David, uh, accepting your definition of intervention and also that democracy is generally a good thing. How specifically would you intervene first in Saudi Arabia <laughs> and then in Iran? In Iran? Try Saudi first. <laughs> okay. Um, and it is actually um, an extraordinarily difficult question. I mean, the first thing I say, obviously, is you have two immensely different countries. I'll say, so let's have this as a general proposition. It would be good for us, and it would be good long-term for the region, if both Iran and Saudi Arabia were to move towards becoming liberal democracies under the rule of law. In other words, I don't accept that there is some kind of notion which suggests that these countries are inured or culturally averse by the very nature of their histories and backgrounds to the notion that the people there should have the right to participate in the forming of government and should have the right to self-expression. And incidentally, these things are embodied in the United Nations Charter, which, as we know, is more honoured in the breach than in the observance. Now... In particular, intervention in those countries does not arise in the sense that we are talking about unless there were to be significant movements by the peoples in those countries themselves that in some way or another we felt obliged or felt it necessary to help. In other words, it had come to a decision point. But let me tell you what I think is a problem. Uh, and in the case of Iran, one of the things that has been extremely difficult in Iran has been keep the balance right between supporting Democrats and being not seen to intervene, because there, being seen to intervene too heavily really does count against the pro-democracy forces. In Saudi Arabia, I'm worried about something else, and it is the sort of thing which we've discovered with regard to Gaddafi. Uh, it is that the degree of um, uh, support... Uh, in weapons terms and in other terms, that we have effect and the sort of intertwined nature of the relationship that we have to Saudi Arabia compromises our capacity to be seen as being on the side of reform. Now, it may be, actually, and Rory can put me straight here, that it actually incredible efforts are going on behind the scenes to influence the Saudis in the, the Saudi royal family in the direction of reform. If so, that's right. But I can't help reflecting on what happened after Blair had tried to bring Libya in from the cold of being a pariah state which was that a lot of people subsequently saw Libya and treated Libya not as if it were a pariah state coming in from the fold, but as if it were an absolutely golden opportunity to make lots of money and to encourage the science of the ruling dictator's family. I think that is extremely problematic. And one of the reasons it's problematic is that when democratic organisations are set up there and are moving, and, they can, and it can happen at an extraordinary pace then it's very unlikely that they will regard the West and Western forms as having been on their side. But in terms of what you mean, you know, in, in terms of direct intervention as opposed to a foreign policy objective, I can see no 
at the moment, useful way in which we could intervene against the sovereign governments of Iran or uh, Saudi Arabia, save over the question of Iranians, uh, uh, of, of the Iranian uh, nuclear program, which I think is a matter of very real concern. And there we have a series of UN resolutions, but the, part, the problem we have is ensuring that in that context other countries are on board with, uh, with enforcing them, particularly China and Russia, whose notion of intervention, Rory, is extremely low threshold. Their idea of intervention is practically you say anything about what happens in their country constitutes intervention. It's, it's, you know, it's even lower than mine. Rory, do you want to add to that or should we go to a new question? Maybe a new question, yeah. Okay, next question, please. Right, we've got a lady over in the right at the back there, and then after that, I'll take that gentleman holding up his hand with the tie. Tony. Uh, change, change is happening today in the Arab world by uh, popular uprising, uh, which means that people in the Arab world understand that they can make change and they don't need any foreign intervention. Uh, if the situation in Iraq, during the situation, uh, the, the intervention in Iraq, people, local people were very uh, less responsive, what are your expectations today while local communities understand that they can make change themselves and much better than any foreign intervention? Thank, Thank you for that excellent question. And uh, incidentally, while answering that, Rory, you, I'd quite like your opinion on whether you think had we not gone into Iraq the same things that we're seeing elsewhere might with Saddam still in power or one of his uh, children uh, we might, might we not be seeing the, the, the Arab Spring in Iraq too um, I, I think that's a very good question because I think it, it points to one of the things which, which is forgotten in this debate all of us would like to feel that you know, the, I mean, if you take that case which David keeps pushing about um, a no-fly zone, all of us would like to feel that if there was a real pressing moral obligation, if Gaddafi was doing something really horrible, impose a no-fly zone, regardless of the Chinese and Russians, just go for it. Right? But, but the problem pointed out by this question is that many, many Arabs themselves are, in fact, I would say the majority, the overwhelming majority of Arabs, are, with very good reasons, deeply, deeply suspicious of the West and its actions. And this fact is something we need to take on board. If you get involved in a situation in which Gaddafi is attacking Benghazi and you say, forget the Chinese, forget the Russians, forget a UN resolution, let's go, let's hit it, I'm afraid you're not going to find yourself now, and this is partly because of what we've done in Iraq and Afghanistan, dealing with a situation in which people will be saying, well done, David, fantastic, benevolent, good intentions, we can see you're doing it for our best interests. They would say, as people in Benghazi are already saying, this is another form of colonialism. And one of the problems with David's worldview, I think, is that it's very, very much based on a technocratic model. It assumes clear moral certainty, clear moral justification, clear execution, result. What it fails to take into account is what I encountered every day in Iraq. I mean, David said that I was in favor of the intervention in Iraq, and I was. And I was completely wrong, totally wrong. What I realized on the ground in Iraq is that despite all the kinds of things that I believed and David believed in March or April of 2003, 
about how horrible Saddam was, about how much good we could do, about how the people, like the French, trying to block the UN resolution were motivated by the wrong things. The real problem was that the Iraqis did not want us, and the reason they didn't want us is because the legacy of colonialism, nationalism, Islam, and that lack of trust. And when we're making these calculations on what we should be doing in Libya, to understand that if we move into a worldview where every time a dictator is using violence to suppress his people, we attempt to get right round the UN system and to take David's phrase, get stuck in, we're putting ourselves in very dangerous grounds. Should we have the technocrat answer that? Uh, yes. I mean, I think, I, think that there, I think I am open to the accusations that Rory makes. I think it's true. I think, I think it is possible. I think he does it too to a certain extent, but I think I certainly have done it to create for yourself an idealisation of how something will be because you want it enough. I think that's in, entirely the case. But the problem is that these do not just attend action, they attend inaction too. That is really the greatest difficulty, and I think that's where Rory is going to have to, uh, have to give it over to me as well. Because what he is posing is how some Arabs may, and actually I would dispute it, but let's say for the sake of argument that some of it is true, react, let's say, to an intervention on the side of those people in Benghazi in the situation where they're being bombed by Gaddafi. Let us imagine the contrary. Let us imagine that no one helps the people in Benghazi when they are being bombarded by Gaddafi. Let us imagine what Democrats and other people and people just involved in uprising around the Arab world think about that. What is their accusation that will be levelled at the West by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people? It is that you would support Gaddafi in some kind of way, but you wouldn't support the Democrats when they came up against him. You know, Rory, that that accusation will be raised. We know it was raised because after Bosnia, it was raised in Spain. One of the major reasons given by the second-wave jihadis for their actions was what they regarded as Western hypocrisy in not protecting Muslims in Bosnia from the Christian Serbs. It came up nearly every time. It featured in all the, it, it, it featured in all the jihadi literature and so on, but is now widely forgotten. In other words, you get criticised just as much, if not more, for your inaction. But it also has this consequence. Not only have you not acted, but you've still got bloody Gaddafi. Um, in, that, in that, now that may be a bit technocratic, but nevertheless, it seems to me a kind of a, a relatively uh, inescapable piece of logic. And I would say one other thing about it uh, in the context of Iraq. I don't believe that any uprising would have uprooted Saddam Hussein or Uday or Kusay Hussein. They simply, I mean, in the end, it depends upon whether the person in power is prepared to use the forces at their disposal, and those forces are strong enough, in order to suppress it, and is prepared to shed enough blood to do it. And Saddam Hussein always was, and he would have been again. It's a fantasy to believe that he would have been taken out by the Arab insurrection. We can speculate about whether there would be any Arab insurrections okay. just, without the Iraq Just invasion. before going to that question of Rory, you wanted a quick comeback, make it quick. Very quick comeback. I think, I mean, David's description of Iraq reveals what the difference is here. Inaction and action are different moral issues. And in relation to Iraq, we have to face the fact that on the one hand, David is saying, if we hadn't intervened, 
Saddam would still be in place. But that does not, even if it were true, Pray to grant it's true, does not justify the sacrifice of probably 150,000 Iraqi lives, thousands of NATO lives, the expenditure of $3 trillion, the complete destruction of the credibility and reputation of the United States and its allies in the Middle East. None of that was worth it. And David has to get out of a worldview where speculation about leaders in other countries and sense of moral obligation drives us into that kind of horror. It's, I'm going to say very briefly, that is a very strong point, uh, particularly that about credibility and reputation, let alone lives. But there is a difficulty here, which is we have to imagine also what would have happened otherwise. We do. Uh, and I note, Rory, that you just didn't. You didn't just then. Uh, and I'm going to invite you to. Before you do that, I'm going to invite you, that gentleman over there, to ask a question. Thank you. Um, Tony Curzon Price from Open Democracy. I have a question for Rory Stewart about what it is exactly you think we can do. So at one point, I think, in your opening speech, you said what we can do is learn foreign languages better, um, uh, engage with local populations, sort of have better chaps in the foreign office, as it were. Um, I would suggest, and I wonder whether you agree, that one thing we can do is actually live up to the ideals that we profess to live by and that we profess that these countries also should live by. And just to take an example, the history of our engagement in the Arabian Peninsula over the last hundred years is a history of promising freedom and democracy but in fact doing everything to make sure that they could never possibly work because we have always put the interests of commercial convenience above the interests of those ideals. And we continue, I pledge, to do so um, in that we allow BAE systems or BP or our dependence on oil to come before actually supporting Republican, nationalist, secular governments in the Middle East. And we've always been terrified of them. So isn't there much more we can do than just have better chaps on the ground? Can't we actually be true to our ideals? Yes, we, we can do much better to be true to our ideals. I mean, the history of Britain's involvement in the Middle East since the First World War is, is shameful what we did after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the way we connived with the Syrian French colony, the way we created a colony in Iraq was shameful. So yes, we can. But, and this is another thing, let's not be so carried away with an illusory nature of what we or our allies are or can be into the bigger danger which is that we talk so much about our ideals, we live the dream of our principles so much that we raise the expectation of people in other countries in ways that we're unable to fulfill. Probably the thing that actually hits me hardest about Iraq was that our presence there on the ground, and my experience in Misan, is that the more I talked about human rights, the more I talked about our principles, the more I encouraged people to come forward, Haida who worked with me as my translator or women who joined our provincial council, who were subsequently 
killed by the Sadrist militia and who we've done absolutely nothing to protect or, or to get out of the country because we did what we couldn't do. We exceeded our resources. We made promises we couldn't fulfill and we raised expectations which we were unable to, to do anything about. So I think that's almost the crueler betrayal. But the other side of that question, which you might also address, Rory, is should we actually be having in our mind the idea of promoting democracy, not necessarily by offering false promises to the people, but by taking on those who are thwarting it, or, should, or is it, is it um, appropriate for us instead to concentrate on a very important point of securing oil, keeping friendly with those who can give the oil on which our economy depends. In other words, have we got our ideals in the wrong order? Do you have a position on whether or not we should actually possibly jeopardize our economic health in favor of the idea of pushing the democracy notion? Okay, this is a really good question because it shows what the whole problem is. The whole problem is that we have created a black and white world in which we imagine that we have to choose all the time, either by being Dick Cheney and focused on oil and oppression and plotting up despots, or on the other hand, Amnesty International, with absolutely no contact with the world at all. This is not... This is not the choice that we face. This is not what our diplomats are there to do. That's not what our international policy is about. We need to discover how to be pragmatically moral how to be passionately moderate, how to combine our moral instincts with our interests and being realistic about what we can and can't do. The reason we let people down all the time, the reason we invade these countries and create a mess, the reason we're probably going to do it again for the next 15 years is we have never managed to get a mature conversation going about what we're actually doing and what we can do in these countries. We're not able to understand, firstly, that these countries are not our countries that these countries do have a claim of sovereignty, that they have their own cultures, their own languages, and they don't really like foreigners being in them. And that therefore what we do with other people's countries, a bit like what I would do with you if you were my friend, has to be limited by a respect for other people's autonomy and other people's choice and cannot involve an endless oscillation between black and white, assuming that the only choices we face are either oil or the most pure conception of our own moral duty. Doesn't that rather ally the preferences of the people and the regime? What do you think? Well, I, I, I was going to say uh, much the same thing. I mean, if we're not very careful, what uh, this conversation becomes is a conversation between, in which I characterise what Rory says as being effectively amoral um, and abstentionist, and he characterises what I'm saying as whatever we do, let's get troops in there, even if we don't have them at the first available opportunity, and tell everybody in those countries exactly what they should be doing. And of course, bits of both those things have happened under various formulations of foreign policy. But I go back to the point that I made right at the beginning about what I thought it was in our long-term interest to have happen and to have encouraged as items of foreign policy. And I also go back to the question of this, and it's the question you just raised, Jeremy, of sovereign governments. If a sovereign government is behaving in an intolerable way to a large section of its own people, 
then in that case, we must take a view about it. We should take a view about it. Now, I'm not clear from what Rory's saying, even whether, on the basis of what he's arguing, we should take a view. Whether we have a right... Well, it's not clear from that. I mean, I mean a lot of these uh, people would say... I mean, and you heard it said at the time of the Balkans. It was said, people put it extremely well, and for a while it was fairly convincing. The Balkans is an incredibly difficult place. It is full of enmities that you don't understand. It is a patchwork quilt of nationalities who have long hated each other. Angels rush in. Uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Consequently, and this was consequent upon it, the last thing we should do is give an extra push to the fire by, for instance, giving weapons to the Bosnian Muslims or allowing them to have weapons from our sources. Uh, consequently, meaning that the only people in that civil war who began to have weapons uh, 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 in the first instance were Bosnian Serbs. That was where that particular thing led to. An over-scrupulous notion of what it was that was cultural to the region actually led to the position that there was nothing useful that you could do other than stick a few Dutch troops round a safe haven called Srebrenica and then give up when the Serbs came in to perpetrate the worst massacre in European peacetime I, history. I, I, I support the Bosnia intervention, so you're I'm not a, arguing against... No, no, it, I'm, no. no, I'm not arguing... You talked about the logic of where the Chicago speech goes to. I'm talking about the logic of where, your, of, 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 of what you outlined could lead a lot of people to go to and will, actually... Uh, uh, Rory, it will lead them to. I mean, let me let, let me just take, for instance, a. You wrote an absolutely excellent piece for the New York Review of Books at the end of nine, 2009 about Afghanistan. But this is what you said, um, and it's very interesting. Enlightenment faith that there is nothing intrinsically intractable about cultural uh, Afri Afghan culture and society, and that all men can be perfected to a Western ideal through the application of reason and the laws of social science. Now, that, of course, is a caricature. It's a caricature of a position, but it has embedded within it its own position. And its own position, which it doesn't quite state, is Africa, uh, Afghan society is intractable to what we would regard as being human rights, social goods, and so on. That's essentially the message that that conveys okay. to the reader. Uh, David, I'm going to stop you there because we're running out of time, and I want to just give a profile of the rest of the evening now. I want to take one or two more questions, no more than that. Then, you, you're, David, you're going to give a quick summing up speech. Then you, Rory. And then we're going to have another vote from all of you. So, questions, please. The gentleman over there. If one looks at countries such as Iraq and Afghanistan, is the real question whether they intervene or not dependent upon our knowledge of the complexity of that country and the, and the tribal linguistic clan divides within it? And I remember from my time in, in Saudi Arabia, the Bedouin saying, I against my brother, my brother and I against our cousins. And I think that becomes the sort of defining factor. So the less complicated, the more ready you should be to intervene. Is that the yes. principle? Rory? Um, I, I think that's a, a really important point. I think this is fundamentally about knowledge. The point about what's gone wrong with our foreign policy, the point about the fashion for intervention is that it's made us very inattentive to the details of countries. The point is we should have intervened in Bosnia. We should not have intervened in Iraq. Uh, 
That's what I think most people in this room feel. And what we're struggling towards is trying to understand what the perils of intervention are, how it is we can learn to recognize where you should intervene and where you shouldn't. And that isn't fundamentally about your view of the dictator. It's not fundamentally about your view of whether what the Chinese are doing in Tibet is or is not wrong, whether what the North Koreans are doing is or is not wrong, Burmese are doing is or is not wrong. It's fundamentally a question of whether we can do good by intervening, by putting our troops on the ground. And that's about knowledge, because we're so hypnotized today by a sort of global generic knowledge. I mean, we talk very confidently about the rule of law, governance, human rights, civil society. But we're very, very bad about thinking about it in a specific context. What does the rule of law actually mean in an Afghan village? Is there a judge there? Is there a policeman there? Is there a court there? How are disputes actually resolved in 25,000 villages in Afghanistan? Once you answer those kinds of questions, your sense of what you mean by the rule of law changes. Your sense of how you're going to spend your 400 million pounds on your rule of law program changes. The kind of people you employ change. And your judgment, and this is what it really comes down to, your judgment on whether you continue to do what Petraeus wants us to continue to do, which is to keep 150,000 soldiers in Afghanistan and spend $150 billion a year until we've got to a situation where we have a credible, effective, legitimate government and we've defeated the Taliban, or whether, as I believe, we should begin to start drawing down now. All of that depends on knowledge, knowledge of the specific. David. Well, of course, it's very difficult to argue against uh, having as much knowledge as you can. And one of the things that is painfully obvious about the uh, intervention in Iraq was the low level of the knowledge that was possessed uh, practically uh, about the society. And that can't be again said. The thing about Afghanistan, and, and this is something you have to recognise, was we did not choose Afghanistan. Left to ourselves, we would never have intervened in Afghanistan. Unfortunately... Afghanistan, through the, in the form, uh, through, through the form of their guests, Al-Qaeda, chose us. That's how it happened. And we were then left with the question of, did we take out the government of Afghanistan because we thought that that was a necessary lesson and because we thought it was necessary to it not happening again? And if we did do that, were we then responsible to a significant extent for what took its place? Funnily enough, Rory and I agree about that. Um, the question then was whether we had sufficient intelligence, used sufficient intelligence about what came next. Um, quite possibly not. But the fact of the intervention itself is not in dispute. And in a funny way, Iraq chose us as well because in the, in the post-9-11 world, the question was whether or not somebody like Saddam would be allowed to continue in defiance of UN resolutions. This was the, uh, the, the, the belief that both Tony Blair and uh, George Bush had. And they David, could... can I just interrupt? Sure. Sorry. We, might, we, might, we might use this as an opportunity, given the fact that we're running out of time, for you to continue on this line and to make this your... Close well, your peroration, and, the, and then we'll. In get that to case, Rory. my closing peroration is this. Here's what my worry is: I don't think that what Rory means by being opposed to intervention is what, by and large, people in a highly pessimistic frame of mind around the country and also in America mean 
by the perils of inter by the perils of intervention. I think he interprets it in one way, as I've seen over Libya, and I think increasingly people interpret it in another. And it is, I think, this interpretation, that we are too poor, too ignorant, and too scarred by our experiences recently to be involved in trying to decide and having a strong view about how other people should be governed. I think that that is... Uh, in the terms of the 1999, uh, 1999 Chicago speech, I think that is a recipe for disaster because I, what I fear will happen is that the world, foreign policy will take the same shape for the next 10 or 20 years as it took in the interregnum between the end of the Gulf War in 1991 and Tony Blair's Chicago speech. And I think that led to many uh, enormous number of the problems that we have today. And that is what I fear not what Rory means by his argument, but by what most people in this country will mean by his argument. Rory, your closing speech. Okay, so uh, this is a very, very interesting conversation because it's going to define foreign policy for us, for the United States, for Europe, for the next 20 years, as David said. And when we're voting, it's going to be very difficult in this debate. But I'm going to appeal to you quite nakedly to try to understand what the differences are between our two positions. Let's not get into a discussion about what intervention means, if you don't want to get into a discussion about that. Let's get into a discussion of what David means and what I mean. If you listen carefully to the way that David speaks about Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya, you can hear the argument of the liberal imperialist. Right? Phrases like, I'm quoting, we did not choose Afghanistan. Afghanistan chose us. And in a sense, Iraq chose us as well. Earlier he'd said in his earlier speech, in Iraq we had run out of policy options. You know, in a post-9-11 world, it in a sense chose us. And in relation to Libya... Do not, he said to those of you in the audience who didn't want to stick up your hands, do not wait to see what the circumstances are. By the time the circumstances have occurred, it will be too late. This is the logic of Blair. It's a very noble logic. It's driven by the right high moral instincts. But if you look beneath the surface of that logic, it's a logic that sees our moral obligation as almost endless, this sense that we don't choose these countries, they choose us. There is no choice left to the politician. But to choose is what we must do. And this is why, in finishing, I want to say the key point about this debate, the key point about the position I'm trying to sell here, the reason that I believe that we're talking correctly about the perils of intervention, the can of intervention, is that we don't need to feel that in saying that other people's countries are complex, are large, are dangerous, that we need to think very carefully, that we need to choose, that we need to consider very carefully the circumstances in Libya before we decide what we're going to do, that we're giving up into an amoral universe. Our moral instincts in this country are ones we should be proud of, can be proud of, moral instincts which David shares but ought implies can. And in voting for my side of the option, you are voting for the statement 
that we do not have a moral obligation to do what we cannot do. Thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard excellent arguments on both sides, and it's clear that when asking you to vote, much will depend on where we put the needle on the question of what intervention means. If we're talking about aggressive actions against a sovereign state, perhaps more of you would be inclined to vote for David, and if we're actually talking about military invasion, outright more for Rory. In the circumstances, it's probably just easier to ask for a vote of whether you now find yourself on Rory or David's side. Those on Rory's side, please put your hands up. And those on David's? Well. We few, we happy few. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, Sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>